This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome to Trashy Divorces, everybody's favorite good podcast about bad relationships. I'm Alicia. My name is Stacy, and we're so excited that you are joining us for this episode. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Stacy. you are taking a little bit of a spider web mm-hmm. from the Shirley Jones story this week, and this episode is going to focus on... Her stepson, teen heartthrob, teen idol, David Cassidy. Oh, I think I love you. Keith Partridge. Oh, Keith Partridge. This is going to be a good one. Lots of dish there. A little bit of tie-in. I'm not even going to mess around with this, Stacy. I am so curious about this story because I ended with Shirley Jones. Mm-hmm. Let's get into David Cassidy and go, go, go. All right, Stacy, dreamy, dreamy David Cassidy. I know we learned a little bit about him in Shirley Jones, sure. but let's go ahead and give him his due respect here as a Trashy Divorces new inductee. Ish. Ish. <laughs> All right, Alicia, you, of course, brought us the life and times of his stepmother, Shirley Jones, and her tumultuous marriage to his father, actor Jack Cassidy. As you explained, this was Jack's second marriage, his first, to fellow actress Evelyn Ward, lasted from June 1948 to July of 1956, when the pair headed to Mexico for a quickie divorce, the kind we like. We love them around here. Paving the way for the August 1956 marriage between Jack and Shirley. That's just so fast. So fast. So fast. Jack and Evelyn's only child, David Bruce Cassidy, had been born on April 12, 1950 in New York City, and at the time of his parents' divorce, was living with his grandparents in West Orange, New Jersey. His parents, of course, traveled extensively for work. And young David learned about the divorce from neighborhood kids taunting him about it. Hey, Wardy, his family name was Ward. Hey, Wardy, your parents are divorced. These kids in the middle 50s were. Oh, God, that's terrible. Poor kid. Yeah, it's not as though his parents weren't around in that particular moment. However, uh, David recalls, this is from his autobiography, come on, get happy. He's five, six, really freaked out by this, runs home, runs up to his mother and asked if she and his father were divorced. And Evelyn Ward said to this little kid, why don't you ask your father that? You're going to see him next weekend. Oh, oh, this is heartbreaking. Yeah. So I don't want to sugarcoat this story too much. David Cassidy, in spite of the professional successes that he did have, He did not really have a happy life, and his odd father and his odd relationship with his odd father played a very big role in his unhappiness. Jack Cassidy did arrive the following weekend, and on a drive with him from West Orange into New York City, it's like a 20-minute drive or something. Let's get ice cream, kid! Oh, no. Five or six-year-old finally worked up the courage to ask his dad if he had abandoned him and his mother... You know, I'm sure he didn't say it that way. Jack paused, but ultimately did break the news and in many ways also broke his son for life. Oh, it's sad. Yeah. 
In spite of Jack's reassurances that he would visit all the time, and really, you know, with the demands of his career, would things actually be all that different anyway? I mean, come on, I travel a lot anyway. David remembers not seeing much of his dad after that. Yeah. Yeah. He, of course, Jack, married Shirley Jones in 1956, and while they briefly resided in New York City in 57, they were off to California, where Shirley's career ascended, Jack's kind of stagnated. They were happy enough. <laughs> I, I don't know. Well, for the times they were. Please yes. go back and listen to those episodes. Yes. yes. When David was 11 years old, his mother, who had had some Broadway success, decided also to head to California. She, I mean, saw it as a career move, but also David was beginning to act out in school and it, she, she realized he needed more time with his father. He was not a motivated student. Uh, he was just generally in need of the kind of discipline and mentorship that a dad should provide. But tragically, as noted, Jack Cassidy was David's father. So the relationship was really defined by Jack's narcissism. And, you know, of course, David, being born in 1950, was coming of age exactly in sync with the burgeoning 60s counterculture. Sure. Imagine being 17 in 1967. Oh, you're going to have a good time. Oh, you're going to have a good time. Well, and it's not only Jack's narcissism, right? He's just jealous of David. Yeah. You have a bigger schlong. You get all the girls. Why can't I date 16-year-olds, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh, it's all terrible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, David Cassidy had the kind of misspent youth that you would expect of a kid growing up in Los Angeles in this, in this milieu. His mom had remarried a film and television producer, and as he'd gotten to know Shirley, his stepmother, over the years, he had warmed to her. So it isn't like he didn't have a supportive family structure of a sort. Sure. But, you know, it was quite an era to be an adventurous young lad in, and David thoroughly enjoyed the sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle that just, like, literally, he just landed into. It was... It was a thing. It was a time. So after graduating high school, which required summer school after a senior year because not motivated as a student, he moved in the late summer of 1968 to New York City, where Jack and Shirley were then headquartered to become an actor. Of course. Of course. I mean, it's the family biz, right? So Jack and Shirley had this big stone mansion about 45 minutes north of the city that they were renting. And they, of course, had their three sons. This is the house that had the pool house where David could entertain his lady entertain, friends. Entertain, yes. Away from his younger brothers and his jealous father, yes. This is also the first time that he had lived with Jack and Shirley full time. That's apparently one of the big misunderstandings about the Partridge family thing. Oh. Like, people tended to assume that he and Shirley, that Shirley had raised him. Sure. That no. was not what happened. Anyway, so first time living with them full time. Dad... To his credit, tried to be supportive. He paid for headshots. He hooked David up with his and Shirley's manager, who really took him on for free for several years because he wasn't, you know, he made like a couple thousand dollars one right. year. Like, she didn't need her 15% cut of his couple thousand dollars. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he supported himself in a minimum wage mailroom job and... uh Made himself completely miserable with auditions for everything under the sun, none of which initially panned out. So like mm. months and months of, of, of rejections. Not overnight success. Not, 
I mean, in the scheme of things, overnight success. But yeah, it didn't feel that way in the summer of 1968. So uh, his first play closed after four shows. By which time Jack and Shirley were back to L.A. The only lucky break that David really had in this period was that a casting director had seen one of those four performances (laughs) and invited him to, like, come to L.A. for a screen test. So... He also gets himself to Los Angeles in 1969. And in 1970, he started finally landing fairly steady work on some TV shows. He and a friend decided to buy a home up in Laurel Canyon, your favorite place. Yes, they did. Their mortgage payment was $315 a month for a home in Laurel Canyon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, David Cassidy is all throughout that Laurel Canyon milieu. Mm Yeah. Uh, shortly after, his agent told him about this pilot that Screen Gems was casting. It's going to be about a widow with six kids who form a band. Well, Natch, it's Dri- the drive, in the 70s. Drive around in a psychedelic bus. It's a good plan. Come on, get happy. The Partridge family was the show. Let's say that David Cassidy was a bit underwhelmed <laughs> with uh, the Keith. lack of meatiness to the part. He tried to pass on this opportunity. Uh, his agent made clear that he did not have the stature to turn down a role like this. Sure. Like, one day, young David, you will be able to pick and choose your parts. Today is not that day. You're going to do this because I do want my 15% at some point. Exactly. So he was going to need to get comfortable with how wholesome this show was going to require him to be. Screen Gems had a formula for this. They had been responsible for the Monkees TV show that had aired from 66 to 68. So this wasn't just going to be a television show. There was going to be, there were going to be albums. There were going to be singles. Uh, there were going to be all manner of merchandise. Dolls, um, merchandising package. Yeah. School lunch boxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, was, yeah. was big. T-shirts, everything. Everything they could think of to sell. They were going to sell. David didn't even know that Shirley Jones, his real-life stepmother, had been cast as his Partridge family mom until uh, he showed up on set. Hi, Shirley. Hey. What are you doing here? He thought his role was very minor. His lines were extremely boring. Hey, Mom, I'm home from school. (laughs) He's playing a 16-year-old. And uh, he was not exactly overjoyed by the very not-cool costumes that they would wear on stage. It was all, it was the opposite of cool. And, you know, young David Cassidy understood it was the opposite of cool. It was his manager, his and Shirley's manager, who pushed Screen Gems and the record label Bell Records to let David try singing. He actually has a very nice voice rather than lip syncing. Keep in mind, like, while he had, he played guitar a little bit and he'd been in bands and he had done musical numbers in plays, he understood himself to be an actor for this gig. He wasn't he wasn't dreaming of pop stardom. Like that wasn't he was he wanted to be an actor in the mold of his father, just a reliable, respected working actor. So instead, uh he like he just didn't get what Screen Gems had in mind for him. By the time he kind of started to grasp what was going to happen, it was too late. So the aspirational serious actor 
was going to be turned into a teen idol making kid-friendly pop records that tween girls would listen to while staring at his poster on their walls. Yeah, that, that was... psychedelic bus had already begun its journey. Yes, thus did the Partridge family launch onto TV screens in 1970. Critics trashed it lustily from their bored, jaded perches in the big cities. But an eager public lustily ignored the critics and the show, its music, and David Cassidy himself became massive, massive hits. This is a good spot to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about David Cassidy's pursuit of something like a normal life, having been shoved into a cheese grater of celebrity. Cheese grater of celebrity. That's quite a turn of phrase. All right, friends, see you on the flip. Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Stacy, I love cheese. Let's grate some cheese. <laughs> Let's grate some cheese. At the peak of his popularity... David Cassidy was receiving 25,000 fan letters a week. There was just incredible. There was a magazine article that mentioned a particular store that he shopped at. That store received more than 1,000 fan letters for him. Presumably fans thinking like, oh, well, next time he's in picking up groceries. Maybe you just or, give him my letter. Yeah, yeah. Just oh, care of David Cassidy, care of, you know. Corner com- shop. Yeah, just incredible. He was 20 years old, and his celebrity was so intense that he lost the ability to go out and do normal things. Uh, he couldn't go to restaurants unless they had private rooms. He could, like, couldn't grocery shop, couldn't, just couldn't. It wasn't long before screaming fans found his Laurel Canyon house, causing the neighbors no end of grief, and he had to move. He would ultimately have to move again. I mean, his fans found him. Found him. For sure. And, uh, yeah. His schedule was intense. He was on set Monday through Friday for about 12 hours. They would knock off around 7 p.m., at which point he would go to a recording studio to make music until midnight or so. On weekends, he would fly out on Friday night or Saturday morning for concerts in increasingly bigger and bigger and bigger arenas and stadiums by the end of things. just a grind. Flying back Sunday night or Monday morning and heading back to the set. Yikes. Meanwhile, you know, he, again, kept having to move. He started having gallstones from the stress. And in the second season of the Partridge Family Show, 
He was hospitalized after a gallbladder attack. At the age of 21, he was the youngest gallbladder patient they had ever seen. Oh, my God. He spent two weeks hospitalized recovering from the surgery, during which time the hospital was mobbed with delirious (gasps) fans who were hoping to sneak into his room. He was fully zonked out on Demerol. There was at one point somebody had said something about a fan trying to, like, put something into his IV. Like, (gasps) it was... It, it, it was scary. It was bad. It was not good. In his book, Come On, Get Happy, Fear and Loathing on the Partridge Family Bus, <laughs> um, he goes on at some length about the ease of sex with fans. Uh, but he also notes that after a while, such things rang a bit hollow for him. What dating life he could muster had to be conducted with extreme discretion because, I mean, it could get dangerous, honestly. And this is how he came to secretly date Meredith Baxter. This was one of our spider eggs yep. last week. Yep. Yeah, she had made an appearance on the Partridge family. He actually lists a number of their the guests on the show, and it's quite the catalog. Of, oh, yeah. It was of, a big deal. Yeah, of well-known actors. Anyway, she had made an appearance on the Partridge family. You know, he's like in this intense schedule, though, so they're like secretly dating It was not a good relationship. He couldn't understand that. Like, he couldn't spend much time with her because he just didn't have much time to spend. They would talk on the phone a couple times a week, I think, was sort of what was mostly happening. And then in 71 or 72, the FBI tells him that there's a kidnapping plot for him. And he ends up uh, living at a Holiday Inn with a Pinkerton... You are kidding! ...detective agency (gasps) security guard for, like, a month... During which time Meredith Baxter and David Burney started their relationship. And yes, he does talk about how they were filming one stage over. Like you mentioned this last week, he kind of had to see it happening. He sort of says she's the only other actor that he dated in this time period that he had any kind of kind of carrying a torch for. So anyway, womp womp, David Cassidy. So if you're wondering how uh, dear old dad Jack Cassidy was handling his son's sudden stardom and these 25,000 fan letters a week and the absolute chaos, here is what Jack told the New York Daily News in 1974 when writer George Maxian asked if Jack would object to his other sons following in David's footsteps. Quote, sure, some of the boys could follow David, the bubblegum star. <gasps> But he can be used up and sucked up very fast in this business. The world is full of Xeroxes, but if they really have a need for it, I wouldn't stop them. Oh, Jack Cassidy. Mm-hmm. Hit the road, man. Yeah, that... You're the worst. That stung. Yeah, like his dad just couldn't hide his his jealousy and increasing contempt. So by 1974, like, it was this, like, four-year roller coaster that David Cassidy was on. He was pretty over it at this point. Like, he just, his life had been destroyed. The teen magazines were, they were partners with Screen Gems in promoting him. He just didn't know, he did not know this was going to happen to him. And I think he probably would choose differently uh, if he could. Anyway, so, 74... David announces like he was going to fulfill his current obligations. So there was the fourth and final season of the Partridge Family Show. And then there would be a concert tour that would take him around the world one last time. And then he was like, nope. And he was out. He's going to retire for a while. He's 24. Sure. 
But yeah, again, take the money, take a break. So he he did. He spent a few years trying to understand what exactly had happened to him in that four year stretch of chaos. I mean, they would have to like when he had shows, they would drive him in in the trunk. They took him in in an ambulance one time to try to keep fans from mobbing him. It was just it. It's like all the Beatles all in one. It's yeah. It's he, a lot. Uh, he, yeah, he outsold the Beatles. It was it was a lot. Also in this period, made some attempts at like a detente with his father. Try to, he he was feeling like, well, if I'm out of the spotlight, maybe my dad will stop being jealous of me and we can have some kind of relationship. But, you know, obviously Jack Cassidy died in that tragic fire at the age of 49 in 1976. The two had not spoken in nine months. Mm. And that had been Jack's choice, like... He was, at that point, just, like, severing ties with... Well, he wasn't in a very healthy mental No, his his mental health had been eroding for several years. But, you know, David and his brothers were all completely devastated by the loss. And so, you know, grief maybe helped to inform a fairly dramatic step that David took in 1977, as he was still reeling and he was still feeling professionally aimless, he got married. Yay! Mazel! Woo! To uh, actress Kay Lenz, a woman that he had known for all of six weeks. Oh my God. Uh, Kay had also recently lost her father. And while some good came from this relationship for David, he writes that they were never a great fit for each other as spouses. They were just emotionally very different. She was by then an accomplished actress. She had won an Emmy. And as he's watching her, you know, read scripts and evaluate parts and do the actor thing, he realized that he missed doing that sort of thing himself. So he reached out to his old contacts in television and let them know he'd be into auditioning if they had roles he might be a good fit for, which got him back into acting a bit. And he even got an Emmy nomination for a role that he played in 1979 because the world is weird. Okay. And that's all well and good, but... Kay's career was pretty heavily impacted by her time with David. It wasn't until 1989 that she would again be honored with an Emmy, and People magazine wrote the Kay Lynn story this way at that time. At the beginning of her career, Lynn's did seem to be doing everything right. The daughter of Ted Lynn's, an L.A. broadcast producer, and Kay, a radio engineer and sometime model, Baby Kay made her acting debut at six weeks. Wow. Cradled in the arms of Betty White on the variety show Hollywood on television. At 19, she got what promised to be her big break, a part opposite William Holden in Breezy, directed by Clint Eastwood. Wow. Though she earned good reviews for the 1973 film and seemed poised for a breakthrough, she settled into a string of forgettable TV parts. Quote, if the role had a big V for victim on it, they'd hire me, she says. Mm. I was a teenage mother so many times that the only way I could tell them apart was how I delivered, whether it was natural, Lamaze, in vitro, or not of this planet. (laughs) (laughs) So the, the People magazine piece continues. The work enabled her to buy a modest home in the Hollywood Hills, where she lives today and where she first resided with David Cassidy when they married in 1977 just two and a half months after meeting on a blind date. Although Lynn says, I absolutely adored him, she now sees that her whirlwind romance with Cassidy, who was still immensely popular after quitting the Partridge family in 1974, may have been doomed from the start. Quote, I wasn't used to that state of stardom lifestyle, she says. When we eloped, it was on the national news. All of a sudden, I was getting mail from women telling me that they had three of his children. (gasps) 
Oh, God. The marriage lasted four years, though it was rumored that Cassidy had problems with drugs. Lynn's firmly denies they were a factor in the breakup. I did drugs. Everybody did, she says. But they were never a problem for us. She remembers being unhappy, but I wasn't sure why, she says. The two parted amicably. Cassidy has since remarried, yet Lynn's fell into a slump. Part of it was because of the divorce, she says. My self-worth was down. Lens didn't work for more than two years and could mm. barely make ends meet. Quote, on my 30th birthday, all the presents I got were boxes of food. That's what I needed. Wow. Yeah. So uh, they also had some significant financial stress on them because David made a series of bad investments, which seems to have been a lifestyle choice of his along the way. He's, he declared bankruptcy a couple times. While David could land parts here and there, there was nothing that had any permanence. In the mid-80s, he moved to England and relaunched his musical career, which um, he had remained pretty popular over there. But his label opted not to release the work he did over there, which did have some success in the U.S. He had a second marriage from 1984 to 1986, and in his book, he just says that there's not much to say about that one. Oh, um, my. They both liked horses, apparently. Oh, okay. uh, and one of David's unsuccessful investments was uh, he tried to breed racehorses for a while there. Mm -mm -mm -mm. Um, that did not pan out. Uh, he describes this period as being an absolute rock bottom for him emotionally and professionally. He couldn't find work. He was deeply, deeply in debt. And for a while, he was living in his best friend's sister's apartment's guest bedroom, struggling to pay his $450 a month in rent. Wow. Right about 1987, things finally started to turn around a bit for him. He had been approached at a party by a woman who was a longtime fan of his and who had picked a career as a talent agent. Because of his lingering success in the UK, she was able to get him cast in a production in the West End that year. Back to the stage became a major success. His fans were turned out in droves for the run of the show. It was a big deal. He had also been tracked down by a woman that he had had a fling with in England years before. He stood up the Queen's offer to have lunch with the Queen of England oh. um, to uh, spend the afternoon with this lady, Sue Schifrin. She would become his third and final wife, although they didn't marry until 1991. He writes that there's something very special about someone who shows up when your life is an absolute catastrophe and embraces you wholeheartedly anyway, which is what Sue did. No work. That's fine. Deeply depressed and angry? Perfect. That's great. Oh, Absolutely no. broke? It's all good, David. It's all good. Oh, my. He got himself into therapy for several years, which Sue wholeheartedly supported. And while he would go on to achieve more successes, including Las Vegas residencies, work on Broadway and in touring productions, and continuing to perform in concert during the next few decades... Apparently, the one thing that David Cassidy was not able to give up was the sauce. And let's face it, he almost certainly, on his father's side, had had the genetics for sure. a raging alcoholism. So let's pause here one more time. And when we come back, we're going to talk about David Cassidy's last days and the way the world reacted when he died in 2017. Back in a minute. As noted, David Cassidy died in November 2017 of liver failure. He was hospitalized for multi-organ failure. He had apparently told the people in his life that he had quit drinking back around 2010 or so, but there were a series of DUIs mid-decade that indicated that that had not actually... Um, mm, that's tough. 
he had not been able to maintain his sobriety if, if he had found it at all. Uh, toward the end of his life, he would claim to be experiencing symptoms of dementia, which his mother and grandfather had both lived with in their final years. But shortly before his death, he revealed that all of those symptoms were actually a result of his alcoholism. Uh, he was 67, and at his bedside were Sue Schifrin, who had divorced him a few years earlier, but, you know, their son Bo was there. He's a singer-songwriter, David's three half-brothers. He also has a daughter with an ex-girlfriend, uh, the actress Katie Cassidy, but I think they'd been estranged for some time at the time of his death. It's, there are odd parallels with his own father's certainly final final years. Sadly, that 1994 autobiography, Come On, Get Happy, he talks about not being in touch with Shirley Jones at that point because he could not stand her second husband, the comedian... Um, Marty Ingalls. Marty Ingalls mm-hmm. didn't get along with him. And so like it, it does feel like there was... Some of, some of the isolation he experienced was of his own making. I did find a picture of David and Shirley together at an event in 2003. They looked very, very happy. But yeah, it sounds like he was never really fully able to move past that terrible and wild ride of the sudden celebrity that was thrust on him. And then like the collapse of his fame that followed, it was just, just changed his life. There was an A&E documentary that was filmed just like, I think, a couple months before his death. And he was candid about how alcohol had wrecked him. He was dealing with liver and kidney disease at the time. And he said, you know, I did it to myself, man. I did it to myself to cover up the sadness and the emptiness. According to his daughter, his final words were, so much wasted time. Mm. The Guardian wrote this in his obituary. Most teen idols eventually find fame a grind, but Cassidy resented it almost from the start. His aim was to be recognized as a serious actor, but that was scuppered by playing cute Keith, the eldest of five singing siblings. I was pigeonholed as a teen idol, and there's no credibility, he said in the 80s. I paid a tremendous personal price. It's a very empty, isolated, lonely existence. He often reminisced bitterly about the turn his career had taken. Just before the Partridge family... He had believed he was on his way to professional acclaim after winning one-off roles in a handful of U.S. TV dramas. But while he proved competent, nothing could distract attention from his fine-boned prettiness. Even before the Partridge family launched in 1970, the teen magazines were circling with introductory articles such as David and Those Special Kisses. Gloria Stavers, editor of the top-selling Sixteen magazine, said, I'd been waiting for someone like him for years. Cassidy, for his part, responded, I'll feel really good when it's over. Mm, that is tough. Yeah, the, the full quote of his there was, I'll feel really good when it's over. I have an image of myself in five years. I'm living on an island. The sky is blue. The sun is shining and I'm smiling. I'm healthy. I'm a family man. Didn't quite work out that way. So kind of the sad life and times of one time teen idol David Cassidy. Well, that was a downer of a story. That was kind of sad. Yeah. I do have one more trashy bit. We're going to come back in spider eggs Mm -hmm. with another illegitimate child that was discovered a little bit later in life. That's kind of interesting. So Patreon folks, stay tuned for that. Mm -hmm. Stacey, do you have a number of trash cans or is it just too sad to assign? I think uh, think all the trash cans go to Jack Cassidy. I Um, would get on board with that. mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'd get on board with that psychedelic trauma bus. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, huh. psychedelic trauma bus. Good, good phrase, good phrase. So yeah, thanks everybody for tuning in to uh, this downer, sad downer episode. Of an episode. Thank you, Stacy, for bringing everybody down. Thanks everybody for tuning in, Patreon folks. Again, stay tuned for Spider Eggs. We got a little bit more coming over there. We got a Spider Webs this week over at Patreon.com slash Trashy Divorces. All the good stuff over there if you are interested in expanding your trashy journey. I'm going to be back this weekend for you with, oh gosh, a heck of a story. A little bit more uplifting than the one that you just told. Hug your people, everybody. Yeah, good advice. (laughs) Good advice. Tell the people you love them, you love them. Mm Mm-hmm. Always a good thing to do. And, you know, also keep your hands clean, I guess. Keep those hearts trashy. Know where your psychedelic bus is parked. Yeah. No, I'm just teasing. Friends, thanks everybody again for spending your time with us today. Hope y'all have an incredible rest of the week. We'll see you back this weekend. Bye, y'all. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear want to advertise with us reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information and last but not least come play with us on social media i keep most of our trashy divorces instagram hopping stacy and i share it up over on facebook including our trashy divorces podcast discussion group come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening keep it trashy y'all